Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome. I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Banking on Climate Chaos, the Fossil Fuel Finance Report, I will be interviewing Ruth Breach, Senior Campaigner of Rainforest Action Network's Climate and Energy Team. Ruth is responsible for organizing corporate accountability campaigns on financial institutions, supporting frontline communities impacted by fossil fuels and climate change, partnering with indigenous leaders and working with grassroots networks across the country to defund climate chaos. Ruth brings 20 years of on-the-ground work with environmental justice frontline communities. She is the recipient of the 2009 Healthy School Heroes Award for her leadership in relocating an elementary school in Ohio away from a plastic plant and its cancer-causing emissions. Ruth serves on the board of Crude Accountability International and Earth Guardians. On today's show, we discuss the Banking on Climate Chaos report, digging into how banks are supporting fossil fuel companies. Multiple banks have pledged to clean up their fossil fuel funding with net zero carbon commitments. But as you will hear today, they continue business as usual, pushing for profits by championing destructive projects responsible for driving climate chaos. The 2002 annual report, Banking on Climate Chaos, revealed that fossil fuel financing from the world's 60 largest banks has reached nearly $4.6 trillion in the six years since the adoption of the Paris Climate Agreement, with $742 billion in 2021 alone. On today's show, we delve into the Banking on Climate Chaos report with Ruth Breach from Rainforest Action Network, one of the organizations that authored the report. She will discuss how these findings underscore the need for banks to immediately implement policies that end their financing of fossil fuel expansion. Moreover, we highlight some of these projects causing climate chaos and the worldwide movement of communities coming together to demand that the financial sector get out of the oil and gas business altogether. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, Banking on Climate Chaos, the Fossil Fuel Finance Report. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guest, Ruth Breach, Senior Campaigner on Climate and Energy with Rainforest Action Network. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. It's going to be a very interesting show. I am extremely curious to understand the detail, how these banks and these fossil fuel companies are connected. And as I said, Ruth, you are with Rainforest Action Network. You're one of many organizations that created this annual Banking on Climate Chaos Fossil Fuel Finance Report. So today we're going to dive in to that most recent report, the relationship between the banks and the fossil fuel industry and the climate finance movement. So let's start with the report. What is the purpose of this report and what points of interest does it cover? Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Jessica, again, for having me and for having this important conversation together. 
The Banking on Climate Chaos report is a really critical conversation. It's even more than a report. Uh, what's happening here is we're looking at the 60 biggest banks and their relation to fossil fuel companies. We're tracking the financing of the banks to the fossil fuel companies since the Paris Climate Agreement was adopted. So we've all made this international commitment to get to 1.5 degrees to stay alive and keep our climate livable and stable. And what the banks are doing are going in the opposite way. They're financing companies like BP, Exxon, Gazprom, Pemex. So these oil companies, energy companies around the world. And we want to spotlight and highlight that work because a lot of the public doesn't know about those deals because they're generally private or kind of in you know dark rooms or behind the scenes. Who's putting this report together? Who are the organizations? Yeah, the report is in its 13th year. So it's been coming out every single year and it's a hugely collaborative effort. Rainforest Action Network, where I work, is, is one of the main partners. Um, we also work with the Indigenous Environmental Network. We have uh, several European partners, Reclaim Finance, Ergovald, and then as well as the Sierra Club, Oil Change International, and Bank Track. So it, it is truly a large lift, and it is the kind of like report of record when we're talking about fossil fuel finance. And we're going to talk about this later, but it sounds like it's extremely important when having these conversations with legislatures with, with within the movement itself. And I know we'll speak to that, but it, it's just so much importance here that y'all are putting together. How often is this fossil fuel finance report released and how does it differ from each year? Like, why does there need to be a new report every single year? Yeah, the report tracks the transactions from the previous year. So in this 2022 report, we're looking at 2021 transactions and the data from there. And it has evolved, just like the climate crisis has evolved and the need for this conversation. Um, When we started this work 13 years ago, it was mainly focused on mountaintop removal. And then it evolved into a bigger conversation around coal. And and then it stayed on coal for several years. And then in about 2016, 2017, we started to have conversations where it had moved from coal to extreme fossil fuels. So that might be offshore drilling, tar sands, oil, things that are very carbon intensive and then also have a high impact on human rights. So that's what we were calling extreme. But again, in, in 2016, 2017, we started to really look at the need of where we were post um, Paris and where the climate crisis was. And, and what we, we did was expand the conversation to all fossil fuels. So this moved the report, you know, from some, you know, 50 pages to like 150 pages. And it was a huge lift, but the need was there. You know, as, as we're seeing now, more and more people are impacted by climate change and will continue to be. So we felt like we needed to expand the scope of the conversation to really meet the scale of the crisis. One of the numbers that you had shared with me when we spoke previously, that one in four people have now experienced direct climate impact. Yeah. And that's a fire, a flood, freezing, you know, and um, just extreme weather conditions have happened. And that was also in 2021. You may have answered this a little bit already, but what are the trends that you're seeing year to year in this report? Yeah, they've shifted. 2019 was one of the highest years that we saw, just kind of by the numbers. So again, we're looking at the 60 largest private banks, 
and the financing. And this is all in um, U.S. dollars. And it's $4.6 trillion is from 2016 to 2021. And then last year, we're starting to see a, like a flat trend. But what we need to see is like a dramatic downturn. And so while the trend is flat, which is, is decent, we need it to be dramatic and down. And we're just not there yet. So let's let's uh, talk about the elephant in the room. What is this deep relationship between the fossil fuel companies and the banks? It's intrinsic and it has been for years. And you want to um, talk about banks like JP Morgan Chase, oil, standard oil, what later became Exxon, Exxon Mobil's former CEO, Lee Raymond, was on J.P. Morgan Chase's board of directors for 30 years. Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. I mean, these have been their clients for decades. The banks really value their clients. Um, I'm sure they value that business that they bring and offer because when the banks cut a deal, they get money from it too. When you're, so when you're talking about scale and scope, the super majors, Shell, Exxon, BP, those are some of the doing some of the biggest projects, biggest fossil fuel projects in the world. And those are the ones that the banks want to finance and support. And part of what we're doing is to, to be that balance. So everything has been so off balance and to really bring account to the banks. They've played like they're a neutral actor. And when you're financing violence and destruction, there's nothing neutral about that. It is. Uh, they are culpable and accountable for what they are doing. And that's part of what this report does is it spotlights these transactions that normally people wouldn't know about. So this is our, our money. If you have an account at any Wall Street bank, you put your money in there and then they use that money to finance other things. Um, so they're essentially using our money to go and do this dirty business. So people have a right to know how the banks are doing their business, who they're doing their business with, and how it may impact our broader society. So you you mentioned some of the banks that are called out in the report. Maybe it'd be helpful for people that are listening to just reiterate those banks and then who the biggest offenders are, the biggest offenders of the banks, and why. Why are they considered the biggest offenders? The, what we call the dirty dozen, unfortunately, is North American dominated. J.P. Morgan Chase is the largest financier of fossil fuels and has been consistently for the last five years. And they're like 30% more than the next bank. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Citibank round out the top four. And those are all U.S.-based Wall Street banks. So I think we, as kind of activists and leaders in the U.S., do have like a duty and an obligation to hold those banks accountable but we also have to remember, these are global institutions. J.P. Morgan Chase is one of the largest private banks in the entire world. So not just in Wall Street, they happen to be headquartered in Wall Street, but we're talking about global impacts So this. We think it's so important to be putting pressure on them because the banks are a pillar of support for the fossil fuel industry. So fossil fuel industry will be continue, will be able to continue to you know, expand, do new projects, do business as usual, as long as the banks are by their side. If we're able to pull out that piece of a key support system, then fossil fuels then becomes in more jeopardy. And what we're seeing here is that we're focusing on, on banks like JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, Bank of America, 
is that not only would we have a ripple impact in the U.S. and Wall Street, but we could have a ripple impact globally. And we're part of a global network. So some of the other banks in that dirty desert are Canadian banks like RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada, Toronto Dominion, TD. We're also seeing a few European banks. Barclays is in that mix, BNP Paribas. So it's kind of a mix. Um, We're also seeing a few Japanese banks, MUFG and Mizuho. So those are some of the biggest financiers of fossil fuels. Um, Rounding out the top 12, Morgan Stanley is also in there as well. And they are another Wall Street bank. RAN, a Rainforest Action Network that you're with, is part of a larger movement here. It's considered the movement of which the campaign of which you are all involved is, is considered the climate finance movement. Can you explain what is meant by the climate finance movement? We were just talking about, you know, what needs to happen with these banks, that things need to change, that there needs to be a different focus. So what is happening and what is the request? Yeah, the climate finance movement has is, has hugely been evolving. It's kind of a newer animal and has really, really grown strength in the last few years. And we stand on some really strong shoulders. So solidarity, the finance solidarity work is inherently that way. If you if you look back at previous examples around the South African apartheid, divestment and financial solidarity was used. What we're seeing more recently with the movement for Black Lives, defunding the police. We're talking about removing money away from state violence. And what we have been working and growing um, over the last couple of decades is around the solidarity piece with people directly impacted on the ground. So we're talking about the different people that have been impacted, whether it's a flood or a fire in your community. We're also in solidarity with the communities that may live near a pipeline or an export terminal, and they're working to resist that project. So that is also a a risk for the banks is these social movements. And the community like Standing Rock is an incredible example. So many people took to the streets, to the banks that were financing energy transfer partners. And that was an action that they could take in their home community. And they didn't have to go to North Dakota to stand with people. They could stand in solidarity in their um, their own communities. We also saw many cities divest from banks like Wells Fargo. This is an incredible momentum that can build and grow that is in um, support of that main campaign and main activity that's happening. But we stand on big shoulders. I was talking about South African apartheid, Desmond Tutu, after the apartheid, he called for work on climate change and saw that very early on as, you know, as a, as a true visionary that he is. And that was a big push that the divestment movement, which is a kind of sister movement to climate finance. So all these institutions now with years of work, people have gotten their colleges or universities to divest funds from fossil fuels. And what we work to do is we're looking at specific projects. So it's been a really incredible coming together with the divestment movement and what was the private finance movement. And now we've kind of come under this broader umbrella of climate finance and largely through the Stop the Money Pipeline Coalition. So it's very intergenerational and um, very much people that are urban based, working in solidarity with maybe either rural or international projects. And I think for our listeners, just for them to understand that this, as you said, rural projects, and it 
this isn't just nonprofit organizations that are working on this. This is community born. These are people from within the community that are making a statement that are taking action. You had said that the banks or the fossil fuel industry is that there that, that there's a risk of social movement to them. So just maybe for our audience to understand that this isn't a nonprofit led, but this is a community led and that, you know, what is meant by a risk of a social movement? You know, why why is there risk in in strength coming from the community? What can the community do in order to affect that change? Yeah, I think any movement to have like power and strength really has to come from the people the, and, and, and the people most impacted by the issue. So I think NGOs can support and, um, and be vehicles of resources. But at the end of the day, this really does have to be kind of like a grassroots led effort. And this is a, it's a, it's a great partnership. So lots of different lived experiences and perspectives, very intergenerational. So we've got youth leaders that are very involved in these issues and people that have been working on them, you know, for decades. So that's a really important piece here. The risk piece is really important. So, so banks need to manage risk and that's that they don't want to give a loan to somebody who doesn't pay back loans. You know, that's why you, you know, buy a home, the expectation is you have a 700 credit rating and um, you're putting 20% down. So that's, that's how they're reducing that risk on the mortgage. And what they're looking at for the fossil fuel project. So say it's a pipeline, you know, last year we did some amazing work, work with the Anishinaabe leaders up North and Minnesota around um, defunding line three. And we had a lot of direct conversations with those banks because there's risk on multiple levels there. There was risk in that the project owner Enbridge was building on lands that had not been consented by. So free prior and informed consent is an international standard that Enbridge had not met. So that was one piece that we were bringing up. And that's something that the banks care about. Also cultural impacts. So the Anishinaabe people were fighting for their manumen and that's the wild rice that is like core to their culture and core to their daily lives. And that was something that was going to be impacted by the pipeline. So if there was an oil spill that may impact miles of fresh water, so drinking water, anything like that is also considered a risk. The company's financial standing could be a risk. And then people showing up at bank branches that is a risk. So all of these are things that could damage a company's brand name. It could damage their credit rating. And those are the things that that we want to be looking at is that they are getting involved in these projects that are inherently risky, whether it's socially, environmentally, or through governance. And we want to highlight those pieces so that eventually they would actually exit the project. Thank you. We're going to take a break real quick and we'll be right back. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston and every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and 
get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Banking on Climate Chaos, the Fossil Fuel Finance Report with host Jessica Aldrich, myself, and guest Ruth Breach, Senior Campaigner for Rainforest Action Network. Welcome back. We are here with Ruth Breach, Senior Campaigner on Climate Energy with Rainforest Action Network. Ruth, how does the climate finance movement utilize this climate chaos fossil fuel finance report? Yeah, thanks for that, Jessica. And this is kind of core to the conversation that I was getting at earlier, that this is more than a report. It is, is actually a catalyst and it's foundational. It, it's providing key data for the movement to use. One of our big things is accessibility. So if you go on the, the website, thinkingonclimatechaos.org, you can go there and you can pull up the data and you can look at whether it's a bank. So maybe you want to look at JP Morgan Chase and who are they financing? So you can get the list of the companies, the fossil fuel companies that they're financing, or you can look by a company. You could look at like TC Energy. So TC Energy was one of the companies behind the Keystone XL pipeline. They're now putting forward the coastal gas link pipeline up in Canada um, that has caused huge struggles of the Wet'suwet'en territory in Northern British Columbia. So you can look on there and say, okay, who's financing TC Energy? And you can see all the banks that are providing funds for them and how much. So that's a, a core piece of data that is available to everybody. And we've gotten lots of you know, input and emails and calls that people are using this information. So it's people like on the front lines in those impacted communities that may be uh, resisting a project. So they want to look and see who the financiers are. We've had the grassroots leaders who are doing a solidarity work, or maybe they're also um, having a project in their community. Like there's a North Brooklyn pipeline in New York and people wanted to see who the financiers are there. So maybe more of an urban project that's happening, or you want to stand in solidarity with another community. We've also seen this in the kind of the nonprofit community. A lot of campaigners, researchers, organizers are using this. And then we've also seen it used by the investor community. So this might be shareholders, high net worth individuals, as well as legislators. So recently, there's been a lot of work about climate finance regulation and disclosure. And Elizabeth Warren is leading that charge. And she uses the data. Rashida Tlaib in the House has been just a really like interested and engaged person and, and was, wanted to see that data when the next report came out. So they're using that a lot and as a basis for their arguments for action on the banks in on the Hill. You even told me that recently your, your team was looking at the Russian gas company, Gazprom, has 68% of Russian gas production. Tell us about that. Yeah, if you go to the website, there's a graph on here. It's called a Sankey graph. It looks like a lot of tentacles and you can kind of isolate here. But, but when the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, one of my coworkers was like, oh, I know Chase works with Gazprom. And we were like, well, how much? And go and went right to that database that you know access, is accessible to the public. And we looked in there and we were able to spotlight that relationship that in particular JP Morgan Chase has with Russia's oil and gas company. And the other piece here, and I know we may get to this a little bit later, is that JP Morgan Chase and a lot of the banks have made net zero 
commitments. So net zero by 2050 to get to this point of reducing their emissions and their financed emissions. And just after doing that commitment, they went and facilitated millions of dollars to Russian oil and gas. And right now they're really looking like they're trying to have it both ways because there's been a big call to divest from Russian oil and gas and the banks are taking major hits and losses because of those uh, relationships with the energy companies. Oh, I bet. And that's a great segue into the next question that this report, the 2021 report, has a special focus on cutting through what's called greenwashing, disguised in these like clever marketing campaigns, like you said, the net zero. So let's explain what you mean by greenwashing and share some more examples. Where are you seeing this? I mean, there's the co-opting of language. There's, you know, using these terms like net zero. Yeah. Yeah. Greenwash is so dangerous. It's dangerous because they they use the language that sounds like they're doing something. It really is a public relations campaign where they have a forward-facing effort that makes it look like they're addressing the issue. And then reality is that they're just doing business as usual. And uh, there is a great feature in the report. It's on pages um, nine and 10. It's, it's, it's two years. And it's really highlighting that 2021 was a year of hypocrisy. And that's what we're, we're highlighting here is that when you're greenwashing, you're essentially lying. And these are the lies. So we have, again, these net zero commitments. That was a big focus of the Glasgow um, Council of Parties last year. And I think there's a lot of hope that the, the banks can be instruments of change in this space, but they're not there yet. I mean, we're seeing, if you look at this timeline from last year, in April, banks launched the Net Zero Banking Alliance. I think this is like Mark Carney's deal and committing to transition all portfolios to align with pathways to net zero by 2050 or sooner. And just one month later, we're seeing $6 billion to Equinor, which is a large expander, $10 billion in May to Saudi Aramco, which is one of the largest fossil fuel companies in the world. And then another $1.2 billion to the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And it's, it's like this, you know, I literally have probably 10 examples that I could point to of banks saying one thing and then doing another. And we have the transaction receipts to show their, um, their hypocrisy and how unaligned they are with actually a net zero commitment. And it's probably not even with net zero. There's even more, not only with net zero, but there's probably many more examples of them going out and saying, we're dedicated to the community. We're dedicated to social justice. We're dedicated to uplifting individuals. Um, you know, some of our, our uh, listeners know that I, I work in the waste industry for my background's trash and seeing these companies who make their product out of fossil fuel and then will come up and say, we're going to go plastic free by 2030 or 2040 or 2050. And no one remembers what they said in a year or five years or 10 years, and no one holds them accountable to any of these. But it's this feel good of, well, they were bad maybe, but now they're going to be better. And it's just a, a, you know, a sexy public relations campaign, like you were saying. Yeah. And we need more than that right now. 
um, with where the climate crisis is right now, these banks, even 2050 commitments seem too far off. 2030 seems too far off. We're, we're calling for an immediate end to fossil fuel expansion. And that's part of what they can be doing literally tomorrow. They could be telling their fossil clients that we will not be supporting any further expansion. And then we can deal with the fossil fuels that are already in play and begin to make the transition that many institutions are calling for, including the International Energy Agency. They're calling for a three to 5% drop in gas over the next 10 years. Uh, and that's where the banks need to be. That's the direction they need to be going. Cut off the tap. So you brought up that there are case studies in this report. I want to bring up two of those and have you speak to them in this as just I'll keep repeating the name of this report. And I hope everyone on the, that is listening goes and checks out this report. It's the Banking on Climate Chaos Fossil Fuel Finance Report. Uh, one of the first case studies I want you to speak to is the LNG, liquid natural gas build out that's happening in the Gulf of Mexico. What is taking place? On the liquefied natural gas gas, this build out is immense. And it's it's going to be critical that we get ahead of it and stop it before it happens. Liquefied natural gas is being propped up as a false solution to meet the energy needs of Europe um, to replace Russian oil and gas. But the timing doesn't line up. So a build out right now, there's over 20 proposed projects and the majority of them are in the Gulf Coast. And the majority of the ones in the Gulf Coast are based in brown and black communities. They're already deeply impacted by refineries, chemical plants. There's even um, proposed terminals in an area called Cancer Alley because those community members have a higher rate of cancer than everyone else in the country because of the toxic chemicals that we're breathing in. So there is some very clear environmental racism that's happening in the siting of the actual terminals themselves. And then you have the additional climate impacts that are happening through the Gulf Coast. So you're talking about receding coastline. So the Gulf Coast is being hit on multiple levels, including the extreme weather with the hurricanes. People are still rebuilding from Ida. So we've been talking to a lot of Gulf Coast residents and people are living in trailers on their driveway while their homes are being rebuilt. So this is months and months after a storm and you know we could be coming up on the next season. So that's one piece of it is in the Gulf Coast. And that's a big, big piece of that conversation. There's LNG Canada, which is connected to the Coastal Gas Link project that I mentioned earlier that's on the wet sewage and territory. And they have not consented. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police have come out several times and raided camps violently. So there's police violence that's happening there in the name of these projects. And then there's also an international build out. So countries like Qatar, Australia, Japan are looking at liquefied natural gas as an alternative to coal. And uh, it's it's carbon intensive. It's almost as carbon intensive as coal. So it's, it's not an answer. This is not the bridge fuel This is not the answer to climate stability. So there's a lot of work that needs to happen before this can like really take hold. So we're hoping to address the expansion issues before the terminals get built. And for our listeners that want even more information on this topic, you can go to our episode 121, 121, and uh, our it's 
and based in Port Arthur, Texas, Community Resistance versus the Climate Change Nexus. So definitely check out episode 121. The other case study I'd like you to share is about the Amazon and the rights of the indigenous people. This is a very complex situation. We've also done multiple shows on this on Eco Justice Radio as well. Um, episode 82, 84, we did a series of them. One of them with uh, the lawyer, Stephen Donzinger. What is, briefly describe what is happening in the Amazon? Why is this such a, an important case study? And what are the indigenous people requesting? Yeah, if you think about this, the the Amazon is literally the lungs of the planet. So we need the forest to be a a, a key carbon a sink and the carbon sequester. So like it's in its natural form. And what's happening because of political agendas, because of economic agendas, is that the forest is being cleared at an alarming rate. And with that clearing happening and the our increased temperatures things are drying out. So now we've seen fires that have cleared parts of the forest, 2019, 2020, 2021. Fires are now a huge part of the entire Amazon. And that's that impacts all of us. And what we also know is that indigenous sovereignty keeps fossil fuels in the ground. So the areas that have been protected are traditional indigenous communities, some of the um, kind of national parks that overlap there. So that's where a lot of the development has not happened because of that fierce resistance from um, Amazonian indigenous communities. And that continues. So the call right now is to um, no further expansion. So no oil and gas drilling, no further expansion in the Amazon. And I think that's a very clear call that we can all support. What are the recommendations that are coming out of this report? I know that you have mentioned a 1.5 degree reduction. What else is taking place here? Yeah, the most clear conversation that we're having with the banks and that is in the report is, is ending fossil fuel expansion. It's, and this is, this is something that could happen tomorrow. <laughs> the banks can enact that work immediately. This is the floor. It's not the ceiling. So we're talking about ending fossil fuel expansion and then we're going to phase out. That's one key piece of what we're talking about. The other one is respecting indigenous rights. As I mentioned before, free prior and informed consent is a, is a critical piece of the work that we carry together. And that's part of what's happening in the Amazon, as well as the Anishinaabe people and the Wet'suwet'en communities that the banks have to have standards there where they are respecting the rights of the traditional lands. And I think those are the big, biggest two kind of buckets of work that we carry and that the report report calls for. The report also has some very kind of um, more granular recommendations if people want to get into the, the weeds of things. A couple of ones that I wanted to point out too is the clear climate commitments uh, before 2030. And then just the concept is we've talked about stop greenwashing, stop lying. Uh, so this, this clear climate commitments by before 2030, what are you specifically asking in regards to that? What is, what is meant by clear commitment? So there's, there's a couple pieces here. Um, most of the banks and, and wall street in particular have 2030 targets, but they are, they're what is called intensity targets. And that still allows for them to expand. And what we want them to do is to have targets in absolute emissions. So that means an emissions reduction. 
So that's one thing we're looking at. There's also a call for them to measure, disclose, and set targets to zero out the absolute emissions and to get in line with the 1.5 degrees pathway. And that is science-based, you know, it's indigenous knowledge-based, it's all been laid out clearly and they're just not doing the work. The targets that they have right now are very vague, including the 2050 net zero pledges. Um, It's just a lot of words. There's not substance behind it that's actually going to move the needle on climate change. We're going to hold for a moment, take a quick break. We'll be right back. And I'm really curious how we're going to confirm these climate commitments and ensure that they're transparent in the way that they are reporting. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Monday at 9 a.m. on KPFT Houston and every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, ecojusticeradio.org, to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Banking on Climate Chaos, the Fossil Fuel Finance Report with host Jessica Aldrich, myself, and guest Ruth Breach, Senior Campaigner for Rainforest Action Network. Ruth, we were just talking about the banks needing to make clear climate commitments before 2030. And, you know, how do we make sure, how does the climate finance movement ensure that these commitments are real, that they're, you know, transparent in their reporting? And how do, how do we ensure that they're actually taking place, actively happening? Yeah, that's the, the main question here. Um, you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on the banks, but how do we know that the work is actually happening? So there's a few different ways that we look at that. One way is tracking policies. So every bank might have a policy around um, different issues that they're working on. So we talked about the 2030 commitments that they have or their 2030 targets. Um, Some banks have exclusion policies. I had mentioned coal earlier. So a lot of banks have exclusion policies around coal power and coal mining. Some banks have exclusion policies around um, the Arctic drilling oil and gas in the Arctic. So that's a great example. But what we have in the report, Reclaim Finance, one of the partners has gone through and kind of audited some of the policies of the banks. And that and that was some of the initial kind of how this report started. It was originally a report card where the banks would get in A, B, C, D. A lot of them were failing <laughs> pretty consistently. And then we changed over to kind of more of a numerical grading system. And what we're seeing is that in that audit of policies, it's just not enough. We have one bank, it's a French bank, law bank, um, Postal, that actually has an exclusion around fossil fuel expansion, uh, which is a great model so that we know that it's possible, but we're not seeing any of the big players pick that up. And they're going to need to in this next year to really address the, the needs that are happening so that's that's one way of looking at like policy tracking, which you'll see a lot of that, the league tables here in the report. And then the other one is really just dropping some of those either project finance. So if, if a bank steps away from a, a project, that's a very concrete way of showing kind of tangible movement. And or if a bank was to step away from a corporate client, say, 
if a bank, you know, cut ties with Exxon um, because of the issues that we're raising around climate change, that would be a huge win as well. So that would be kind of some more tangible steps. So they have their policies and we want to hold them to those policies, but they're just on paper. What we want to see is those actions and a shift in business as usual so that they're actually aligning their portfolio, the values and what they're saying and what they're doing. And also just because they have this written policy, does that mean that all the times they're actually upholding to that policy? So they may say that no, no funding of Arctic drilling, but is that actually what's taking place? Not generally. A lot of times there's loopholes. Sometimes these loopholes can be very big. Sometimes they can be very small, but usually it's not to the standard that we would find satisfying. And that's what you'll see is some of those grades that um, sometimes they're color coded, like green, red, yellow, orange. And I would say most of the banks right now, uh, there's just the one that's like green. (laughs) Most of them are in the lower areas as it relates to kind of their policy tracking. And also in some cases, a bank may have a policy and then not follow through on it. But we've also seen banks stay away from projects because, and then note their policy because of it. So it could go both ways. To reiterate some of the points that you've already made, why is it so important to understand this link between the fossil fuel companies and the banks? So just, just to come back to that. Yeah. The banks is a critical pillar of support for the fossil fuel industry. If a company wants to build a pipeline an export terminal or any other kind of expansion in fossil fuels, they need capital. They need money to do that. So the banks is a key system of support that is keeping the fossil fuel industry alive. And the banks are not neutral actors in this situation. So this report shows those relationships between the banks and the fossil fuel industry so that we can move a system essentially that could have global impact in addressing the climate crisis. Let's talk about the growth of the climate finance movement and the work being done in the communities. We had mentioned this a little bit earlier. What are some of the groups or actions that have taken place that you find inspiring? Yeah, it's been awesome to witness the growth of this movement. Um, It's, as I mentioned earlier, it's very intergenerational. Um, So there's been youth leaders that have come on and they're doing work within their community. This is high schoolers, college recently graduated. They have a pledge around asking people to not have their first bank account at JPMorgan Chase or Wells Fargo. So one of these Wall Street banks that are supporting fossil fuels. They're also doing a lot of work on recruitment. So the college recruitment events of having students sign a pledge to not join working at an insurance company or a bank that is supporting fossil fuels. So we're talking about like the next generation of workers, their next generation of customers. So I think that is really important and visionary. And then there's also some really great um, intergenerational work on third act. So Bill McKibben has a group, then they are essentially organizing boomers, you know, and getting folks involved there. There's high net worth individuals like the Rockefeller family that are putting pressure on the banks around climate change. And there's just been amazing actions all over the countries. We're talking like 
hundreds of actions that are happening in dozens of communities consistently of people just showing up at bank branches. Sometimes they have amazing artwork. Their community is out there in full support. So we've been seeing those consistently. There's been through the Stop the Money Pipeline, these wheat pasting of artwork that's happening. So it's, it's called beautification. So there's been a beautification project of taking posters and putting them on the banks. And it says defund climate chaos. And this like really beautiful artwork that's done by um, different artists around the country. Yeah, it's it's been awesome. Um, I'd say some of my favorite ones, I, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is there was Bird Dogs of J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon. And one of them happened to be in L.A. while there were fires that were happening. So he was at an event at UCLA around the internet, the anniversary of, of the beginning of the internet. And people just went in there and with drums banging and disrupted the event and called him out on climate change. And they the other folks that were there, they're not wrong. So it's just really interesting to see sometimes that level of support from other areas. And there's just, again, just been really leading up to this shareholder spring. There's a number of unprecedented resolutions right now at all the big six Wall Street banks for shareholders. So these are this main investors and these are high net worth individuals that have shares in the company, in the bank's they're put forward resolutions around um, no expansion of, of fossil fuel finance. So that's a big vote that's been happening at the banks. And so you have people that are both kind of revolting inside in like in the system. And then you have people that have been revolting on the outside. Um, people have been putting tripods up, you know, blocking intersections. It's just been a really, really powerful growth to see the movement come in its full force. Do individuals have the power to shift our fossil fuel funded economy? And in what ways can people get involved to make a difference? Yeah, the, everyone can do something. They There is a way that I think that's what makes the movement so beautiful and so powerful is that there's so many different lived experiences and perspectives, and there's so many different expertise. So anybody can get involved here. I talked about the pledges, the youth pledge. So that's the way that they're engaging young people. There's pledges for um, older folks. We have people that are showing up at bank branches. If you are maybe um, immune compromised or not ready to go out into the unmasked world, there's a lot of stuff that's happening online um, during COVID and kind of the higher points of the pandemic. We were doing things like calendar jams and sending invites to some of the executives where they would get like thousands of them. So it was just really fun ways to get involved. You can send emails. Uh, we call corporate executives on the regular. So you can make a phone call to a CEO or to a key executive. We're doing things on social media with hashtag takeovers, things with um, fun memes. Uh, some people are divesting their money. Um, there's a lot of people that have moved their money. Um, Green America uh, and Better Banking is a great resource. You can just put in your zip code. And um, if you want to move your money out of a Wall Street bank and into a credit union or a fossil-free bank, those resources are there. There's another action with Stop the Money Pipeline, which is an incredible coalition of over 300 groups working together on climate finance. And they're calling on the customers. So if you're not ready to you know, divest your funds or that somehow is really difficult for you and you've got your mortgage at Wells Fargo or maybe your car payment or you have a credit card through Chase, 
and, but you still want to hold them accountable. You can get engaged. I think they're up to maybe like 40,000 different customers that have sent a letter to the CEOs ahead of the shareholder spring that will be meeting with branch managers at, at the bank branches. So there's all different ways that people can get involved. Um, if you want to order some artwork and beautify a bank branch, that's available right now as well. So lots of different ways that people can show up. What was that link that you mentioned in regards to finding a bank that is more friendly to the environmental movement and the environmental as whole? Yeah, that's Green America and they have a better banking. I can, I'll send that over. Yeah, we will put in our resources on our Patreon as well as in our information on our website. Do you feel that the divestment campaigns have worked? I think the divestment campaigns have been hugely important to really raise awareness about fossil fuels and like what our future looks like and also how the universities and the colleges have been complicit in this and by really creating that wedge for the university and colleges to step away. Um, I think it's been really powerful, especially since you have institutions like Harvard that divested from fossil fuels and that felt like open floodgates. So I think that um, it's been successful in a way that it's made the conversation so much larger. But I think when we're talking about success and are people safer on the ground, you know, from the impacts of fossil fuels, unfortunately, we're not there yet. Um, This is still a very scary time with extreme weather. I live here in Colorado and there's been, you know, people have been evacuated twice since December because of high winds and fires. So the seasons, as we're coming up on hurricane season, we, we still have some very, very, very big mountains in front of us. But I think the divestment movement has been a critical support system to really build the awareness and also move institutions in a way that is actually going to make a livable future for all of us. What does long-term success look like? I think it looks like a lot of things. I think that this current system that we're in is going to be so heavily reformed that actually we may need a new system, that the, the banking is part of a capitalist system that relies on stolen land and stolen labor. So the the roots of this are rotten. And I I think that they're going to push it as far as they can. They will cut down every tree, pull out every piece of oil, and it's going to take everything and it's going to take everyone to stop them. And I think when we're able to actually stop the expansion and stop the burning of fossil fuels and then and stop cutting down forests, and then we can really start to look at what reimagining looks like. Um, there's some amazing communities of practice that are happening that are talking about the just transition to move workers and communities away from fossil fuels. And I think for me, definitely following their lead and vision as practicing on the ground and what it would mean to scale that not only across the U.S., but internationally into another way of thinking that eventually a world without fossil fuels and maybe without banks. You'd also made a comment to me that before we did the show, when we first met, that I, I found to be quite profound. And you said that success is when people are safe in their communities. What, what do you want to speak to that for a moment? 
Yeah, I was talking about a little bit with the divestment movement of kind of like, how do you, we define success and success is are, are people on the ground safer? Is how have we addressed this issue? Kind of what are the tangible impacts? And that we know that we can live in our home safely. They're not going to burn down because of wildfires, because it's been too dry. We know that we can live in a warm region and not freeze, you know, in the winter. And that safety is critical. I think that safety is, is the most important to all of our livelihoods. And that's something that we're all working for. And is definitely at the forefront of our work in mind. Um, one more question before we close out the show here. You have mentioned that there are multiple organizations that have been involved in the creation of this report. What does that global relationship look like? Yeah, we have been kind of growing it. And just late last year and early this spring, we came together in a global campaigners discussion. So it was people from 10 different countries, multiple time zones, and having that discussion, because we realize again, the banks are global institutions, but we're also seeing some of the same issues happening, whether it's in Europe or in African countries, Australia, um, that there's a lot of the same kind of power dynamics. We're, they're getting a lot of the same um, greenwashing and sound bites. So we realized that we needed to come together as a global community and have that solidarity across the many time zones and across the many borders and countries to have a a bigger understanding of what was happening here. So it's still early, but I think what you'll see as we've seen with the climate finance movement is that it will, it will grow. I think over this next few years that we're really looking at the scale of the problem and the scale of the problem is international. It is something that we're all being impacted by and that we need to be in solidarity and standing with each other around the country. So the, those conversations are absolutely starting and happening. And I'm actually really looking forward to seeing them have more progress. Well, before we close out here, I just want to let our listeners know that we're going to extend this conversation. And if you want to check it out, please make sure that you go over to our Patreon or to ecojusticeradio.org that will lead you over to our Patreon as well. Where can our listeners find more information about the campaign, about the report, and also about RAN, Rainforest Action Network, and how can people stay alert of upcoming events and actions? Yeah, follow us on social media. Uh, We're always doing something fun there. It's at RAN, R-A-N, at the handle we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I also would suggest follow Stop the Money Pipeline. There's a lot of different creative things that you can do. I mentioned order artwork right now. Um, There's different days of action and activities. There's literally something always going on that folks can plug into. And where do they get the report? At bankingonclimatechaos.org. 100% recommend checking it out. And even in on the website, you can decide, do you want to have a livable climate or do you want the world burned up? So there's a lot of choices and data available there. I would absolutely bookmark it. Let's hope everyone chooses 
the livable climate and, and not burning it up. We are also on our social for people who are interested. We are going to do a video with Ruth and she's going to show us how easy it is to utilize this report and to find the connection between maybe your bank and, and a fossil fuel company. Thank you, Ruth, for being on. Again, we're going to extend this conversation. So those that want to hear more, go join us over at our website or at our Patreon account. And Ruth, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to our guest, Ruth Breach, Senior Campaigner for Rainforest Action Network. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Banking on Climate Chaos, the Fossil Fuel Finance Report. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, well, you know what to do. Subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, get that shared knowledge out out there and help us continue our efforts by joining our Patreon or making a donation to the show. A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found on kpfk.org, kpfd.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Eit, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.